Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I am Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den in Monument, Colorado. Special thanks to Derek and Susan Fulmer for letting us hold up here. And I am with one of my favorite dudes in Colorado Springs, Jody Harlow. Jody, welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. I have had actually a few people tell me, you need to get Jody on. You need to get Jody on. You need to get Jody on. And so we've, we've been trying to work this out for the last couple times that I have recorded here at Lion's Den. But uh, when we were at Cobalt Club earlier this week, I kind of asked you, hey, any chance you can make this week work? And you said, ah, yeah, I think I could make one of those two slots work. And so we're doing this. Finally. All right. So first question, what you smoking? So I'm smoking a cigar that you gave me, Steve, uh, called Safari, uh, done by Joe Basil, and it is a fantastic smoke. The flavor notes in the beginning are already tasty. It's, a, it's smoking well. This is just a great cigar, so thank you very much for that. Yeah, Joe is the man. I'm a huge fan of him as a person and his cigars, the Safari cigars that he produces with his father-in-law. And so, Amen. Joe, we love your stuff, <laughs> and uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, Jody, you are a Louisiana kid. I am. So tell me about... raised. Tell, tell me, where'd you grow up? What was life like growing up? So I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, but I went to college and pastored in Natchitoches, Louisiana, a little town south of Shreveport, about 30 minutes north of Fort Polk. And uh, it's just a, a little town. If you've ever seen the movie Still Magnolias, which is kind of a chick flick, everything you see in that movie is true and and real, and that's what the city's like. Really? So it's a really neat city. And this time of year, they're filled with visitors, probably not because of COVID right now, but they fill the whole city full of lights. It's the city of lights, and they have a big Christmas festival every year. So yeah. that's what it's known for. So talk about Steel Magnolias and that uh, tie to that town, because I've never watched the film. And chances <laughs> are there are some other Holy Smokers on here, dudes like me, that are like, yeah, I had no interest in ever watching that <laughs> one. So, so it, it, we talked about this on uh, Monday when we were at Cobalt. Yeah. And so kind of explain the story, how it ties, and that kind of stuff, and your ties to, <laughs> to that story. Yeah, so my grandparents were kind of leaders and uh, catalysts in the city. My grandfather worked for the electric company that started the Christmas festival. And uh, he actually introduced the first Miss Mary Christmas contest. And my mom grew up there in, in the city of Natchitoches. And so the movie, even though it's more of a kind of a chick flick, the movie is really about um, small town folk and how they work through things in life. And the movie is actually came from a play uh, that was written by a man named Robert, Robert Harlan, who wrote the play about his daughter. So his daughter is the main character in that, and uh, she passes away, and there's a lot that's going on within that community of how they deal with grief, of how they come together, how they go through different holidays and things like that. So it's a really neat, it's got funny parts, it's got sad parts, it's a great movie, but it really highlights that small town and that small Louisiana community feel and what the culture's like. And so it really represents that town well. Hmm. So that's cool. So growing up, what was it like for you? Um, growing up, it was interesting. My brothers were much older than I was. Really? Uh, my mom was a single parent school teacher. So we were always going out to her classroom and on the weekends and getting ready for, you know, 
doing lesson plans and things like that. And she taught for about 52 years. So she loved teaching. She taught wow. elementary school. Yeah. But yeah, my brothers were much older. And by the time I was 10. How much older? Uh, they're 10 and 12 year, years older than I oh, am. Oh, wow. So I'm the baby. Yeah. So she used to say I was a surprise. I was like, yeah, it was probably the mistake. You were probably like, oh, what did you do to me? So, <laughs> but we would laugh about that. So my brothers were more kind of like mentors to me because they were much older by the time I hit 10. Yeah. And then uh, I, I was somewhat like an only child. Sports, anything like that when you were a kid? So I grew up, when I was about five years old, I started taking martial arts. And so um, I've done martial arts most of my life. And that consumed most of my life. I, you know, uh, joined uh, fighting teams. Uh, I competed nationally, internationally. I taught. I really enjoyed coaching athletes and, and teaching. And so it really consumed my life. I was really passionate about uh, martial arts. And the martial arts I did was Taekwondo. Now, explain for the listener the different martial arts and where they come from, because for, for, <laughs> for people like me who have never been in any kind of martial arts, you hear, you know, jujitsu and yeah. karate and kung fu and taekwondo and Krav Maga and all, all of these <laughs> different kinds of martial arts that, uh, you know, my friends are taking or have taken over the years. So kind of explain you know, kind of an overview for people that aren't familiar with that and talk a little bit about the history of Taekwondo because I found that fascinating. Yeah, so almost every culture has their own way of fighting or defending their culture. And so martial arts really came from cultures wanting to protect their people and protect their belongings and, and defend their, their areas. And so you find different martial arts all over the world, not just in Asia, although Asia has the most prominent ones and probably some of the oldest ones, things like karate that came from Japan or Kung Fu from China. And then um, you've got others like Krav Maga that comes from Israel. You know, and so these are fighting arts that really defend the culture and build pride within a people. And I think it's that drive, especially kind of a manly drive for that testosterone to do something, to stand up for yourself, to take it out back if you have a problem with somebody, you know, those kind of things like that. And so Taekwondo came from Korea and Korea being a small island uh, was always being invaded by other countries. And so they were very poor. They didn't have a lot of weapons that they could use. They had farm tools, but that was about it. So they had to develop something for not only their military, but also their civilian population to be able to defend their land, defend themselves, defend their families. And so Taekwondo has its root in that. And General Choi, who created Taekwondo, he was a military man. Uh, I think he, he started as a lieutenant thinking about this and going to Japan and training in karate. But it really wasn't applicable towards the needs of the Korean people. And so he took what he learned in Japan and he altered it to fit the needs of the Korean people and what was going on in Korea with all these different invasions and things like that. And so it really was born out of that. And so it was um, very interesting. There were, th I believe, 13 original Korean men that were on the team. And their desire was not only to sell Taekwondo and this concept of Taekwondo to the Korean people and to the Korean government, but to also take it worldwide. So these 13 men on this team 
traveled from country to country to country. And I want to say they traveled to over a hundred countries and they would go to open tournaments yeah. and they'd fight in these open tournaments. And the deal was if they won, the country would adopt their style of Taekwondo and they would leave a representative there to start teaching the population Taekwondo. If they lost, they would, they would leave in dishonor and never come back and, and, and let them go. In all the countries that these men went to, they never lost one competition. And that's wow. how Taekwondo is spread around the world. So, but there's two sides to the Taekwondo and there's a really interesting story about that. Yeah. Um, it deals with politics and the CIA and all these operatives and, and war and things like that. But part of the story was the original creators of Taekwondo want to reunify North and South Korea. Mm. And of course, politics got involved in that. There was a lot of tensions. And so after there was an assassination attempt on the original creator of Taekwondo, he took traditional Taekwondo to Canada and formed what would soon become the International Taekwondo Federation. That's more of a traditional type of Taekwondo. Well, South Korea, being that that was Korea's art, their sport, they didn't want to lose that. And so they started a new form of Taekwondo called the Korean Taekwondo Association. And it's more of a sport type of Taekwondo. And so there's these two types of Taekwondo that exist now, more of a traditional style that kind of came from Canada and kind of came into America. And then there's a sport style, which is, you will find in the Olympics today. So really two neat kind of uh, stories of Taekwondo and how those exist. So Now, what drew you into getting involved in Taekwondo? That's an interesting story, Steve. So when I was about five years old, I learned to write. I learned to write my name and my phone number because that was important. Back then you had to learn those yeah. things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I learned to write my name and my phone number. And one day we were in Walmart and I saw a free sign up. They had this cool you know, sign up area where you could sign up for free classes. My mom had a philosophy that only fools leave their names and faces in public places. But it looked cool. And as she was walking away, I snuck over and with a little pen wrote my name and my phone number. It was, it was barely legible, but you could see it. Yeah. And that night, the instructor called my mom and told her that I had won three free months of Taekwondo. What? Yes. So that night, I got my behind beat because I wrote my name down in a public place after she told me to not to. But the instructor was so nice and my mom knew I needed some discipline, I needed some role models and kind of a purpose and so she allowed me to start taking it. And so I took it for about two months and then traded in the last month for my first uniform. So, and after a while, I, I, I was passionate, I loved it. I just, I would get up in the middle of the night and stand on my bed and punch and kick. And I mean, I just loved it. It, it consumed my life. And, really? Um, really? But we couldn't afford it. Being a single parent school teacher, my mom raising three boys, we just couldn't afford it. So one day my mom went into the instructor and sat down and, and was gonna pull me from the program because she just couldn't afford to pay for it any, any longer. And my instructor made a deal with her that if I helped out in class, that he would sponsor me as a student in his school. And so I started helping out in class and around Dude. eight or nine years old, I started you know, leading different portions of the class. And again, I would eat up everything my instructor would say. I would watch what he would do. I'd try to mimic it. And uh, one day he went into his office. He had to see a parent and 
I just kind of took over the class. And here I am about eight, you know, nine, 10 years old, and I'm running a class by myself. And I'm passionate, I'm bouncing off the wall, I'm teaching, I'm just so excited about it. My instructor was really impressed. And so that started me teaching and coaching and really getting involved in, in helping others develop their martial arts skill as well. What was the name so, of that instructor? Uh, his name is Scott Tier. He's now a master, he's still in. So, How important was he in your life? Oh, huge. I can only imagine, bro. Huge. I can, huge. He I, was a I'm, mentor, and he's still one of my mentors. And, I, and really? uh, I, I credit a lot of my leadership and where I am in the military today to his mentorship and how he guided me and how he empowered me by letting me do things like that. So. That's cool. And, and, and it's beautiful that you still have a relationship with him. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, how old is he now? Um, goodness, that's an interesting question. Maybe about 50 years old now. Okay, so, so, so he wasn't that much. He wasn't that much older. So he's a young was. instructor. He was. He Interesting. Was. Wow. So you got two older brothers, and then you got Scott, who's also pouring into you. Absolutely. That's cool. Now, you mentioned to me that you haven't, you, you didn't play any sports. It was all about taekwondo. It was. It was. It consumed my life. I was there. I would walk over. My school was about a block away. I would walk over from school. I would sit out on the curb in front of the, uh, the Taekwondo school and do my homework until the instructor came and opened the door. And I was usually there from four o'clock in the afternoon till about nine or 10 o'clock uh, in the oh. evening. I would run the um, demonstration team and things like that. So I would be there pretty late. And I did that almost every single day. And you went far in Taekwondo. I did. I did. I just, I never stopped. I just kept going. So all the way up through college. Yeah, but you went far in terms of success. <laughs> I did. I did. I, I was very blessed. Come on, dude. Don't try and be <laughs> humble on this thing. Talk about that. I've got some championships. Um, I was on the Junior USA team for a while, and I was on the Louisiana fighting team. And, um, and then when I got to college, I opened up my first school in college. Uh, there was a need for it in Natchitoches, in the little town I was in, and I opened up my first school and started training students there. Some of my students hit black belt, and so when I went to seminary, they kept the school open. Uh, I came back there to pastor and opened another school, and so I had multiple schools going on at the same time. Dude. So it's a really neat thing. So it's really been part of my life and part of my journey. Yeah. Jody, talk about that world championship and the national championship, because <laughs> you were a world champion before you were a national champ. Yeah. Talk about that, dude. Seriously. Come on. <laughs> So I competed in the world championships in 95 and 96. And uh, I won a world championship, but I had never had a national championship before that. And um, as I was teaching and helping coach other students, one of the parents, we had a plaque on the wall with all the national champions. And many of those kids I had trained myself and had coached and helped become national champions. But he kind of made a, I don't think he meant it in a negative way, but he just kind of made an offhand remark that my name wasn't up there. And we didn't have a world champion plaque anywhere. We just had a national champion plaque. And that kind of bothered me a little bit. And so in 2012, I'd kind of come off of retirement. I'd stopped competing after, uh, after 99. I, did, I, I, I just wanted to teach and, and pour into people. But I came off of that and started going around the circuit again. And uh, in 2012, I actually won a national championship, my first national championship. So I had a world championship before I had a national championship. So... You, 
ended up going to college, but because you had a mom who was a single mom, school teacher, you knew college wasn't really affordable to you. And so that's how you got into the military. I did. I did. I was in junior ROTC. Another mentor in my life was my junior ROTC instructor who helped me fill out scholarships. He helped me. He gave me awards. At one time I had an award from uh, the principal, from the superintendent of schools, and also from the president of the United States. I had the Legion of Valor, which is the highest kind of junior ROTC award you can get. It was really neat. He really pushed me. Um, he was an old Vietnam uh, vet, Green Beret and Ranger. Yeah. Uh, he actually lives in Georgia now. He posted on my Facebook this morning just kind of encouraging me. So he's been another, you know, big influence in my life as well. And so he helped me write out scholarships and I was able to get a full scholarship through ROTC in college, Army ROTC. And that really kind of um, boosted my career as, as going into the military. So talk about that, how you got into the military and kind of those first years. So I had studied through high school, I'd studied law. So I always thought maybe I'd be a lawyer. I was passionate about that. Um, I enjoyed litigating. I would do teen court and mock trial and I worked for the prosecutor's office. And so that, that was kind of the direction I thought God was taking me. Um, God was also working in my life in the ministry as well. I gave my life to Christ when I was 18 years old and God just, he just. Talk about that story. Oh, it was, I don't know that. Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. I was, you know, I was lost. I, being kind of an only child um, with my brothers gone, I was lonely and I wanted friends. But even though I was in Taekwondo, I, I lived kind of two lives. I was in Taekwondo and I was, you know, I, I was successful over there, but at school I was still so being bullied. My mom had a philosophy that you don't fight. And so I never used that. And so I never stood up for myself. And, um, and so I was being bullied and I just wanted a place to belong. And at one point around 16 or 17, when I first come into high school, uh, there were some kids that were practicing a, a cult called Wicca. And I thought maybe, wow, maybe these guys have the answers. They, they seem friendly, they're nice to me. They get together. They had this thing called a coven. They talk about love and friendship and not breaking the bonds of the coven. And so that attracted me. And so for a while, I kind of went that direction and joined their coven and was practicing Wicca. But I felt so empty inside. I really? it just never, it really never met that desire to be filled, that God, you know, as Pascal says, as that, that God-shaped hole that only he could fill. But I was trying to fill it with all these things. And um, I just found myself getting more lost and hopeless and, and hurting more and more lonely. And I really needed something greater than what I was getting. And so at one point when I kind of hit rock bottom as a youth and was really struggling, I got a car on a Sunday morning and Sunday night, I drove myself to the closest church. It was a little Baptist church right down the street. I just drove myself there, got out of the vehicle, walked in. I didn't know anybody there and God changed my life. There was a man there named Rick Gates. Um, he was a Sunday school teacher. And of course, like most youth, I was a little smart aleck who knew everything and I was a little arrogant. And, and, you know, I had been hurt by other people. And so people who typically are hurting hurt others. And so in the Sunday school class I would go to, 
you know, Rick was the nicest guy, but I would always try to challenge him and, you know, and, and ask hard questions. I remember asking one time if God could create a rock that he couldn't lift, you know, that things George, like that. That old George Carlin one. Yeah, he... absolutely. Yo, anything like that that I could throw at him to kind of throw him off because I was hurting. And one day Rick looked at me and he said, he, everybody had left the class and I was getting ready to head out. And Rick goes, you know, Jody, I've allowed you to ask me a lot of questions and I'm more than welcome, or I'm more than happy to answer those questions for you. He said, but I've got a question for you. And I was like, shoot, go ahead, ask it. I got it, I can answer it. And Rick looks at me and he goes, Jody, my question for you is, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? And I fired back, yeah, I know who he is. I know exactly who you're talking about. And he goes, it's not what I asked you. He said, listen to the question again. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I wanted to fire back at him, but I couldn't because I didn't have that answer. And for once, the young, arrogant, hurting kid who thought he had all the answers didn't have the answer. And when I went silent for a minute, Rick looks at me and goes, do you want to? And with tears, my eyes right there, because I knew I was hurting and I knew that's something that, that I needed. And Ooh. something within me just rose up and said, yes, 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 say yes, be humble, say yes. And I did, I just said yes. And right there in that old small Sunday school room in that church where I didn't know anybody, that man led me to Christ. Mm. And it changed my life. And I remember one night God speaking to me and saying, Jody, you know the life that you've had you know the life that you've been in. Now know the life that I can give you. Ooh. And you know what? From that point forward, God changed my life. After that, you know, my junior ROTC instructor, my senior year, all of a sudden I was getting awards. All of a sudden I was becoming president of these organizations. All of a sudden I had these scholarships. I had more scholarships than any other student in the school that year. God showed me success. He built me up. He took someone who was nothing, who was worthless, someone who was broken and insecure, and he made me somebody. And it was so powerful and so incredible what God did because then he skyrocketed me. On the same side, you know, I, I left the church. Just the church kind of fell apart after a while. Uh, it, like I said, it was just a small church. They were having their own issues. God just used it as a tool. But then he brought me to a bigger church. And that summer I went to camps. I went to mission trips. I joined the youth choir and God really gave me a heart for ministry. He started working that area in my life. Yeah. And so I go to college after that. And in college, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm in pre-law, I'm political science, I'm studying philosophy at the Louisiana Scholars College. I'm doing these things that I feel like God, that's the direction God's taking me. But at the same time, I was also doing ministry over here. And it was my junior year of college that I went to what's called the advanced camp. Now it's called the um, LDAC or the leadership camp. It's where you go to train to be a lieutenant in the army, to be an officer uh, for ROTC cadets. And at that camp, someone, they have all these different booths where they're trying to get you to join their branch. Hey, come be armor, come be infantry, come be an engineer. Oh, we've got the best over here. We're the queen of battle. We're the king of battle, all these different things. And then there was a little table, but nobody was sitting at it. It was a table and it was a chaplain's table. And I didn't know what a chaplain was. I never heard of this thing. 
And it's funny because I saw the chaplain's table and it was empty. There was nobody sitting there. All these other had these big posters, these banners. They were giving things away. Hey, here's a koozie with a, you know, the armor logo on it. Hey, here's a keychain with the infantry logo. Hey, we wear the coolest colors. We do the coolest stuff. But the chaplain table had nobody there. And you know, one of the other cadets that came with me walked up behind me. He goes, you know, you're a godly man and you work in ministry. You ought to be a chaplain. And that's when something started festering in me. And I was thinking, what is this? What's this new feeling that I have? You know, here I was passionate about law and doing law. But now I have this new interest and this new, you know, churning in my, in my soul to do something like this. And later on, the chaplain comes by. He's an older guy. He's got this big, you know, he looks like Moses. He's walking around with this big stick and things like that. And I see him and I go, oh, you're the chaplain. He goes, yeah, I'm the chaplain. And I said, what's it like? What is this chaplain thing? And you know what he told me, Steve? What did he say? You'll never imagine. He said, don't do it. He says, it's horrible. He says, you'll hate every moment of it. And he walked off. What? And that sat with me. That hurt. That hurt deep down inside because I knew there was something wrong with that. I felt oh, like God why? was saying. What was it inside of you that, that felt there was something wrong? Here's a man that represents ministry. Ministry in the military. And he looked so discouraged and distraught. And then does it discourage others to do that? And I thought, what's going on here? And I felt like God was telling me, I want you to do that, but I want you to do it better. And I got back home and I prayed about it and I was like, God, I don't, I don't, I don't even know where to begin with this. Again, I put all of my eggs in this law basket and being a, or being a, a JAG officer in the military, a lawyer in the military, yeah. I didn't even know what this other thing looked like. And so I started researching it and asking questions about it. And I heard you had to go to seminary. So it required another, you know, four years in, in college to get a, a master's of divinity degree that you had had two years of pastoral experience. And it, it seemed like a world away, like a, just a big leap. And then someone else came up to me and I had that third confirmation that, hey, you ought to be a chaplain. And I told God, I said, God, if you'll open up doors, I'll do it. Right after that, my senior year, it, to get an educational delay is a very difficult task in the military. It's hard to get an education. It's very competitive because basically what the Army says is we will commission you as a lieutenant and we'll put your requirement, your required six years for the ROTC on hold so you can go get a higher education to come back as a professional soldier. One of the professional branches is you've got the doctors, the PAs and the doctors, you've got the lawyers and you've got the chaplains, the, the pastors. Those are the three professional branches that you have to have a higher education to come in and do. And I got an educational delay. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. So God, you're serious about this. <laughs> I said, well, God, I don't know how how even pay for seminary. And God allowed me to get some grants and some loans to be able to go to seminary. And he helped me find a seminary, an endorser. The Assemblies of God is my endorser. And so he opened that door. And then the rest is history. 
He took me through that door so easily and it was so smooth that I knew that's, only, that's what God wanted me to do. That was the only direction he wanted me to go. Mm. And so I was one of the first chaplains to ever commission out of ROTC. They actually put crosses on me. I swore in as a lieutenant and Major Miller, my junior ROTC instructor, came and pinned me, pinned my lieutenant bars on me. Master Scott Tier was there, my instructor. He was there to be part of that. My brother, who was Marine, presented me my first salute and I gave him my coin and off towards the chaplain corps. I took those off and put the uh, special staff branch until I got my seminary degree and got my pastoral experience to be able to come back in as a chaplain. Mm. So that's my story up into the chaplaincy. How important are chaplains in the military? Because, I mean, from someone who's never served, my dad did, all of his brothers did. I can only imagine in those life or death situations, especially so many, I mean, the war on terror, Afghanistan, Iraq, even before that, what, you know, what was going on in uh, Serbia and Kosovo and all that. Yeah. You guys see some of the worst of humanity and... I can only imagine. I mean, we, we hear on the news all the time about PTSD and how it's affecting soldiers. How important are you guys? I would say, Steve, we're the heart and soul. We're the moral compass. We're the listening ear. And I'll say from my perspective, it has been so important for me to be there at certain times. In times that typically for people are the hardest and loss and suffering and struggle and war. For me and for chaplains, sometimes those are the most intimate times you can have with somebody to where you can be there and you can walk in that journey with them. It's been really incredible. And I've seen some of the worst. I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan. I've jumped out of airplanes with my soldiers. I've gone to air assault and rucked and done the obstacle course. I want to be there. And for most chaplains, we want to be there. We want to be there with our soldiers. We want to be God's representative in whatever situation they're in. And so for me, it's been important to be there. And I've tried to be at every opportunity I can, even the hard ones. You've dealt with some PTSD yourself. I have. Sometimes going with soldiers into difficult situations in deployment, walking the wadis, going out with them, you experience stuff as well. But then the other side of it is a lot of the caregiver and the compassion fatigue that you get because you do carry your burdens. And for a long time as a young chaplain, and I would encourage any chaplain that would listen to this later on, I thought I was a superhero, that I could take everyone's pain away that by walking the floor at night and worrying over your soldier that somehow you could help them heal, you know, or you could save them from whatever they were going through. And then a wise, mature chaplain who had been in for a while one day came up to me and said, you need to put your cape down. And I said, what are you talking about? She says, put your cape down. I said, what cape? She said, your Superman cape. She said, number one, you're not Superman. You're, you can't you know, fly or be anywhere or, or see through things or save people from things. And she said, and you're not Jesus Christ. You can't carry their burden. 
Mm. And she taught me one day one of the most profound things. She said, you know, when I leave out of my office every day after talking to soldiers and being with families and helping them do difficult things, she said, I learned to take all those things that they gave me, stick them into a Jesus-shaped duffel bag and lay it at the foot of the cross and say, God, today I've done everything that I possibly could do. I've got to trust you to do the rest. Mm. And she said, that's what helps me be able to sleep at night and to go on, trusting that God will take just the little seeds that I've planted or watered and bring the fruition and make them go, grow, just like it says in the Word. Mm. That was revolutionary to me because I learned to do that. Because we do, we carry our soldiers' burdens, and especially for me, I, God created me unique in that I truly care. I love my soldiers to death. My soldiers are my world. And so when they're hurting, I'm hurting. When they're scared, I'm scared. When they're in need, I want to be the one who brings what they need. And so I, I love my soldiers. And sometimes, even though you try not to carry their burden, you do. And it's funny because for chaplains, what's unique about us and what a lot of civilian pastors don't realize, because I've had civilian pastors come to me and say, one of these days you'll be a real pastor too. You'll come out of the military and you'll come back into the civilian world and you'll be a real pastor. What they don't realize is we are pastors, but we have some of the largest, most diverse congregations out there. I've got atheists who still call me chaplain mm. and who I love just as much as I would love a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Christian. I love my soldiers equally, every single one of them. And I would give everything I have just as much for a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or a you know, Jewish soldier as I would as for a Christian soldier, because mm -hmm. we were all God's creation. And I love those soldiers just as much. And see, in, in the chaplaincy, we're given a unique role that we provide and perform so as a Christian Assemblies of God chaplain, I, provide, or I perform um, religious services and religious rites for Christians. But for my Muslims, Buddhists, Wiccans, all these other ones, we also provide. So I make sure their need, religious needs are provided for. So if they need resources to do that, I provide the resources. If they need a place to gather a sacred space, I'll provide that sacred space. I'm not a Buddhist chaplain. I'm not a Muslim chaplain. I'm not a you know, Hindu chaplain. So I can't perform their religious rites, but boy, I can do everything to provide for those so that they can perform those. They can have that opportunity because they have the same freedoms in America as we as Christians do. And to protect my ability to go out and perform religious services for soldiers, I also have to protect their religious freedoms to do the same thing. And so that's the really cool thing about the chaplaincy is we have that broad spectrum that we can perform and provide. Now you oversee other chaplains. Yeah. You're kind of a supervisor for a bunch. And you talked to me on Monday <laughs> about a conversation you had with a Buddhist chaplain that, that you're one of your guys. Yeah. So I've been a, doing the chaplaincy for 17 years now. And you start as a battalion chaplain, which is a captain or a lieutenant. Sometimes there's some lieutenants there. And that is the highlight of your career because 
you're assigned to somewhere between 300 to 1,200 soldiers in a battalion, and those are your soldiers. So, you know, if they're jumping out of airplanes, you're jumping with them. You know, if they're going on a ruck, you're going out with them. If they're going on the range, we're non-combatant, so I can't shoot a weapon, but I'll go out there and use the dead space to speak to soldiers, to hang out with soldiers, to be there with them. So we're always around. So being a battalion chaplain, that is kind of like the highlight of your career. But then as you move up in rank and you become major, you become something like a brigade chaplain. And it's more of a, a supervisory or administration role. That was hard for me at first because I was like, I don't want to leave my flock. Mm -hmm. I want to be with my flock. I want to continue to be a battalion chaplain. Yeah. But then I met some really good majors. I met some really good supervisory chaplains. And those guys were incredible because they taught me that now as a major, as a supervisor, now I got to be a chaplain, a pastor of pastors. And I still have senior leaders that I, I provide ministry for. But my main role is to coach and mentor and develop young battalion chaplains and make sure they have all the resources to be successful in their ministry. And so right now, what's really cool is I have a very small brigade. Typically, a brigade will have about five or six battalion chaplains and religious affairs specialists. That's their enlisted, their chaplain assistant. They'll have those. But for me, I only have two because I'm a small sustainment brigade. And those two chaplains are so unique. We're all opposite. Here I am, a Pentecostal, charismatic chaplain. I, you know, I bounce off the walls. I get excited about stuff. But then I also have a chaplain who is a Protestant. He's Southern Baptist. And so not as charismatic, not as bouncing off the walls, but we work well together. And then on the other side of it, one of my chaplains is Buddhist. And so I started praying about this and saying, how can I best support them? How can I best, you know, help support their ministry without compromising my own religious values? And that's not an easy answer. That's no. a hard balance right there. Totally. But what I looked, about it, uh, looked at it as is I'm here to supervise and mentor and develop them to do what they do best. Not to force them to do what I do best, but to develop them to be good at what they do. And so for my Buddhist chaplain, I've been coaching him on how he provides his religious rights as a Buddhist. And so how he communicates those. So I don't know anything about how he performs Buddhist services, but I can go and observe. And as I learn, I can also watch it, how he performs those and ask questions. So a lot of my mentoring is asking questions. How do you think that went? What do you think you did well? What do you think you can do better? And then I help provide them the resources to be able to do that better and help get them mentors who may be Buddhist or who may be in the community. And so always resourcing, trying to find ways to help better them do what they do. And I will tell you something. I'm going to brag here for a second. <laughs> I've got two phenomenal chaplains. When there's a need, they go. They know their soldiers by name. And one of them, the Buddhist chaplain, actually has one of the largest units on Fort Carson. It's a CSSB, so they provide, they provide all the truck drivers, the fuelers, the food, everything for Fort Carson. They support every other unit there. So it's a huge battalion. But he, if there's a need, 
If there's a domestic violence issue, he's there to be with that family, to coach that family, to help that family be better. You know, if there's a death, he's there to grieve with somebody and to help them grieve. And so it's really neat. I'm, I, I'm definitely blessed because I have some great chaplains. I really do. So it makes my job easy. So. <laughs> but I've enjoyed it. It's been a change for me. I like being, if my soldiers as a chaplain, if my soldiers were out underneath a truck, working on a truck, I wanted to be under that truck with them. If they were working on a helicopter when I was a, an aviation chaplain, I wanted to be on that helicopter with them, watching them work or flying with them or getting their hours in. When I was a paratrooper, I've got 60 jumps in the 82nd Airborne. I have jumped out of an airplane which is crazy because I'm deathly afraid of heights, but I don't care. If my soldiers are jumping, I wanna be there with them. So going from doing that and being with your soldiers every day to being a supervisor and now thinking, oh, how can I help these chaplains be successful at doing the same thing I did? It's a big jump, but you know what? It's been really neat change. It's been a really neat adventure. So you're deathly afraid of heights. Yes. <laughs> what was it that compelled you to set aside, you, you say you're still deathly afraid of heights. Oh, absolutely. What is it that compelled you to set aside that fear and make 60 freaking jumps, bro? <laughs> Let's put it like this. If I'm afraid of heights, and I'm 40 years old now, and when I was doing this, I was in my 30s. If I'm afraid of heights, and we have an entire division, so close to 10,000 soldiers who are jumping, I guarantee there's some young 19, 20-year-old soldiers who just came into the Army, who went to airborne school, who are having to do those jumps too, and I guarantee they're just as afraid of heights. But that's our job, that's what we did as paratroopers, is we jumped. And you had to have at least one jump every three months. And so these soldiers are having to go do this. What compelled me to do that was thinking if me being afraid of heights can get up there and do this in front of those soldiers, it might inspire somebody to do the same. Did anyone know that you're afraid of heights? Oh, absolutely. Really? Oh, absolutely. That's cool. I, mean, I would That's cool that. you're vulnerable about that. That's cool. Plus, I mean, the best prayer time is right there, <laughs> right there in the, in the harness shack where everybody's getting their gear on. They're getting ready to go out there. Some of the best prayer time was right there. <laughs> There's something in there for someone who's trying to overcome some fears. Just go for it, I would, I would assume, what, what you would say. Absolutely. A lot of it was false motivation on my part. <laughs> <laughs> I would turn to everybody on that aircraft and go, let's do this. Woo! And inside I'm like, oh, no, we're going to do this. <laughs> but you know what? What fed me is hearing testimonies after that where somebody goes, Chaplain, you pumped me up today. You pumped me. I was so scared when I first got up there, but knowing that you were on the plane with me, that we had the man of God on the plane with us, we knew we were going to have a good jump today. <laughs> I don't know, something like that, that pumps you up right there. That's Makes you cool, want to go bro. do it again. That's so. cool. So you are getting ready to transition out of the military. I am. I am. Talk about that. Talk about that. Because I, I think the circumstances and the trials that you have gone through, I think are really going to minister to someone that's listening right now. So this has probably been one of the hardest decisions in my life. It's even hard to talk about now because I'm still working through it. It's still, it's another scary thing. You know, it's another scary thing in my life because this is all I've ever known. 
I came in at a young age. But some of the things I noticed is when I came in the Army, I came in in 2009, deployed in 2010, got back from deployment, PCS to another post. PCS is the transition. We moved to another post. Usually we do that between one to three years. We move. Moved to another uh, post. Got married. Two weeks later, deployed again. Moved to a different unit after that over in special operations and deployed six more times after that. Got back, went to a training school that was away from my family. Came back, got orders to go to Korea. We went to Korea. Finally moved back to the United States after two years in Korea. Got here and in two weeks after getting here, deployed to Europe. And so it's been deployment after deployment after deployment. And what I realized in all that time that I was missing was community. Had all these friends, you know, pastored all these chapels and these services, did all this ministry. I was very lonely. It also took a toll on my family. Yeah, bro. And be very transparent. While I was in Germany on my last deployment, my wife decided she didn't want to do it anymore. Mm. So while I was over there, she divorced me. And there was a lot of hurt and a lot of pain there. Or some other things she did out of hurt and anger. That here I am, a chaplain. I've done about 52 marriage retreats for couples. I'm certified in about 10 different types of marriage counseling. This is what I do is encourage and build up families. And here I can't even keep my own one together. Mm. And I hit rock bottom. And I struggled. And I came back home after that deployment. And when we come back home, there's usually this big celebration, this big party. Everybody's got these signs. Welcome home. We love you. You see families running together and hug you. And I came home to nothing. And it was hard. But it was a wake-up call. And I'd given everything in the ministry. And I didn't have community. And I didn't have family. And I knew some things had to change. Some of the other issues were, you know, I'd been given and given and giving through Iraq, through Afghanistan, Kosovo, Bosnia, Turkey, Germany, Korea, all these places I'd gone and traveled. It was a great adventure. But I'd been given and given and given of myself. But I hadn't been putting anything back in. And some of the things that I experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan and some of the burdens that I was carrying from my soldiers, I hadn't dealt with. And when this happened and I came back home and I was struggling with my family and carrying some of this stuff, it all kind of came to a head. You know, it's in the hardest places that you find yourself that you realize you can't keep doing this. You can't keep doing it alone. There's a saying that I've used before that sometimes you dig a hole so deep that you can't get yourself out of it. And I'll tell you, Steve, I was, I was going places in my career. I was the highlight of my career. And I went to Korea and we had a congregation of about 10. When I left there two years later, it was about 300 people. It was blooming. God had done some incredible things. 
You know, but it took days and nights and me pouring my life into that and, and even sometimes kind of neglecting my family and, and taking priority. When soldiers would come at night, I would leave at night, you know, get out of bed, um, out of the warm bed and go and be with those soldiers. At some point you can do that so much to where you're doing these things and you're doing ministry, but you're not taking care of yourself. And I, I dug this hole so deep and I just got to a point where I couldn't get out of it. And so in the midst of, of losing my family and, and coming home and having all these problems and dealing with all this stuff, it just brought me to my knees. And I got with God and I said, God, what are you doing? What is it you want? And I had some really good prayer times just up in the mountains here in Colorado, just seeking God. And one of the things God laid on my heart is, and one of the things I was really desiring is just community. I needed community. I needed to be fed. And so that started the progression of, of me saying, you know, I've had an honorable career. I've given everything I've got. I need to start transitioning. And I, was, I prayed about it really hard. And I said, God, is this really what you want me to do? Because it was scary. Again, it's a very scary process because it's what I've always known. It's what I've always done. It's what I've loved. I've been passionate about. And God has, God has really blessed me in this. I've got stories after stories of lives that I've been able to touch through this. So I said, God, is this really what you want? You know, he gave me a peace in my heart, in my heart that it was. And what's crazy about this, Steve, right now, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out of the military. I have no idea what's next. But I know that this is the direction that God is taking me right now. And I'm at peace with that. Mm -hmm. I tell you what it's like. It's like getting ready to jump out of that airplane. I can imagine. And I don't know if that, air, that parachute's going to open or not. I'm trusting it does. I'm trusting the guys that packed that packed it well. I'm trusting that when I hit that ground, I will land the right way and not get injured. But that's what it feels like right now. It's scary. But I've got to trust God in this. And I know here in the Holy Smokes community, I've really found a family. Hmm. I've found some close friends and it's been encouraging. You know, people who have been through things that I'm going through now, who are walking with me. And maybe it's not exactly the same, but it doesn't matter. They're walking with me in this journey. I have someone to walk with, someone to encourage me, someone to lift me up, someone to, you know, bounce things off of and say, am, am I doing this right? And it's been really incredible. It's been very healing. I have a feeling, my man, that parachute's going to open at the last minute. <laughs> and you know what? There's a song right now that really I hold on to. And the words in the song say, and he's never let me down. And you know what? Through my entire life and my entire ministry, through every deployment, he's never let me down. And so I trust him. Jody, there are people listening right now that they're in the middle of a transition. Mm. They could be in the middle of a divorce. They could be like me, having lost a spouse. Mm. They could have lost their job because of COVID or because just the job didn't work out. It could be in a career transition, something. What kind of encouragement would you have for them as a guy who is also in the middle of that transition? Steve, I want to give you my favorite analogy. 
and I've encouraged a lot of soldiers. It's an analogy on manure. I preached a sermon at Main Post Chapel at Fort Riley, Kansas, when I first became a chaplain. And the sermon was called Finding Meaning in Your Manure. And I told the congregation, I said, many animals produce manure, but I believe that humans produce more manure than any other animal because we produce spiritual manure, mental manure, emotional manure, and physical manure. And I said, what can you do with that manure? There's four things you could do with it. One, you can let it stack up and choose to ignore it and pretend like it's not there. But everyone else sees it and knows it's in your life, even though you choose not to ignore it. That's not a good way to deal with it. Second thing is you could bury it. The problem with burying manure is if you've ever buried manure, it's still there. It's just under the surface. And people have a way of digging around our lives and sometimes digging deep. And when they hit that manure, that nasty stuff comes up. And maybe it comes up in anger. Maybe it comes up in frustrations. Maybe it comes up in emotional baggage. Whatever it does, it comes up. It's still there. It's not gone. Third thing that people could do with manure is you could try to burn it. I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I have burned manure. And I will tell you, to burn manure, you've got to mix it with chemicals. And what you end up with after you mix it with chemicals and you burn it, it's just this pile of nasty mess that's left over. So many people try to get rid of their manure by burning it away, by mixing it with chemicals like drugs and alcohol and things like that. But what they find out is in the, the day after, after they've gotten drunk or try to deal with that with, their, with the chemicals, with drugs, is they still have that manure still there. It's just a bigger mess than it was before. So if you can't let it stack up and you can't bury it, you can't burn it, what can you do with your manure? I talked to some farmers about this a while back. I talked about all the animal manure that's produced. And what do you do with this stuff? Does it stay, does it, do you bury it? What do you do with it? And they start getting excited about manure. They love talking about manure because they'll tell you that they do this process called composting. And composting is taking the manure, the nasty stuff, and mixing it with good dirt. And they mix it with that good dirt. And what's that relate for us is we mix with good people. People of once who've had manure in their life and they've worked through that manure and they've become good dirt. So we've got to mix with people. We've got to get together. And the Word of God says, do not forsake the gathering together. That's why we need each other. We've got to have each other. We've got to walk together. But then they tell me that once out of every seven days, they bring that manure to the surface. Amazing that God says that we should bring our problems, we should confess our manure, our sins to one another so that we may be healed. We've got to bring it to the surface so the Holy Spirit can, can break that manure down. But what's incredible about that, once the Holy Spirit breaks that down, we've mixed with good dirt, we've mixed with good people, we've confessed these things, we've brought it to the surface, we've prayed over it, we've worked through it. You know what that manure becomes? For a farmer, it becomes something called fertilizer. Something that produces new seeds and helps grow new seeds. It becomes fertilizer, something that's usable. For us, it becomes our testimony. So I'd encourage people to hang in there. You know what got me through this, Steve? Hmm. 
You know what got me through this? And I hit rock bottom, finances, my career, everything, my marriage, everything hit rock bottom at one time. You know what got me through this? The fact that one day I could share my story with somebody and help them through theirs. Mm. That God would take this junk, this manure in my life, and in time with good people, with community around me, with me trusting him and saying, God, I trust you. I don't like what I'm going through. I'm struggling in my heart. I'm angry at you sometimes, but I trust you. I'm gonna stay in here. By doing that, that God would then take this nasty, ugly manure and make it into something beautiful that would help become a testimony that others could hear and have hope in their life. Mm. It's funny, I've preached this my entire life, but until I've experienced it now, it really didn't have this type of impact that it does now in my life. I know what it is to go through that. And one day I'll be able to walk with somebody else and help somebody else because I've been there. I've hit rock bottom. I know what it feels like, what it tastes like, what it smells like, how much it hurts. And I'll be able to walk with them in their journey as they're hurting and hopefully encourage them that they can get through the same, if not worse, if not you know, less terrible things, it doesn't matter. They can get through it. That answer your question? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Jody Harlow, let's get to rapid fire questions. All right. Hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80-year-old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years, so I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this decay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a holy smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. When did you first try cigars? So, or pipe or pipe. That's an interesting question because it wasn't until I was in Iraq. In Iraq, we had kind of a, a difficult commander to work with. And so the executive officer, the second in command, he gets stressed out at night and he would come over to the chapel that was the farthest building 
on the Ford operating base and sit in the back and he would smoke a cigar. And sometimes he'd have a, one cigar per arm or per hand. And he's, he's chain smoking <laughs> these cigars. It. Yeah. <laughs> I remember he loved Macanudos and I, I had no idea anything about cigars. And I'd go out and sit with him and just hang out with him. But I noticed that there was like a wall. He was like kind of closed off to me. He didn't really open up to me. And one day I looked at him, I said, sir, give me a cigar. Oh, no, 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 Chapman, no, 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 Chapman. You don't have to do that. I said, sir, give me a cigar. And he gave me a cigar and I lit it up. And it was incredible the magic that happened. Because as soon as I lit up that cigar and he realized I wasn't judging him for smoking cigars, that I was just like him, I was having a cigar with him, it was like word vomit came out. He started sharing things with me. And it was, it was just this magical ministry moments yeah. to where over a cigar, we got to chat and talk and share. So that was the first time. But then I didn't touch a cigar again until I got to Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, I had a big porch on the back of my chapel. And on that porch, some guys came to me and they said, Chaplain, we'll never come to your service. We just want to be honest with you up front. But we noticed you have a porch at the back of your chapel. Can we sit out there and smoke cigars? I'm a yes guy. I want to do anything I can for soldiers. I was like, absolutely. You're more than welcome to do that. And so what I used to do is I get through preaching at 11. I walk to the back where these, all the heathens were sitting. And I'd sit back there and I'd have cigars with those guys. You know? And then every once in a while they'd go, what'd you talk about in the, in the building over there, chaplain? And I'd get to share my sermons. So it was a great moment. And I knew I had an hour and a half of a cigar that I got to share with them and talk with them. And so it became this really cool ministry. And that was my first experience at Holy Smokes because we called it Holy Smokes. That's cool. <laughs> you ever try pipe? I have. I do like a pipe. My, my friend and I, this, is, this it sounds like a joke, okay? Because a congregationless chaplain, a Pentecostal chaplain, and a Jewish rabbi. <laughs> it does sound like a joke. Walk into a coffee shop in Pyeongtaek, South Korea. We would gather on Saturday nights and talk through our messages, which is really cool because the Jewish rabbi had a lot of insight on the history oh my goodness, of some yeah. of the Old Testament sermons we would preach. Yeah. And we would have cigars together. Well, one day, my friend Al, who's the Congregationalist chaplain, he's a Holy Smoke member as well, pulled out a pipe. And I was like, what is that? What an interesting thing. Yeah. And so when he left, he, um, he was on rotation to Korea. When he left and came back to the States, he actually mailed me a pipe set. And that was my first introduction to a pipe. So, and I love, I love a pipe. I'll have a pipe every once in a while. That's beautiful. Favorite cigar? Favorite cigar. I love a man of war, but as of today, Safari just became my favorite cigar. I love this cigar. I've got an extra one here in my humidor I'll give to you. That way you can take it home and you can enjoy it. We'll be friends for life after that then. This is a great cigar. Great job, Joe Basil. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Wow. I don't have an answer for that. Because sometimes I just buy cigars and I like to try new things. Some of them have been, some of them are in their probably $24 Cigar, been, been in a higher price point, but I just enjoy a cigar. And every once in a while, I want to treat myself. So that's hard to say. It's a hard question, Steve. Well, I have a feeling that, <laughs> that there's a holy smoker listening right now that's going to want to contact you through Facebook and send you something, something special. So oh, your name on Facebook is? PJ Lane. So look for PJ Lane, and that's 
done for a, a story that we probably won't get into, but uh, you were trying to avoid reporters that were contacting you, and so you changed your name. So I'm hoping that a couple of holy smokers are listening right now, and they, <laughs> they reach out, they private message you, and hey, what's your address? I'm going to send you something. Oh my goodness! I guarantee you, there, there's probably somebody that their heart has been pricked with your story and your what you're going through and what you've been through, and so. Thank you. I'm honored. Best dollar for dollar cigar. Best dollar for dollar cigar. One that uh, my friend Tim just introduced me to is a Charter Oak. It's like a $9 cigar, but it's got a great flavor to it. It smokes evenly. So I think a Charter Oak cigar. Your go-to place to get smokes. Wow, that's a hard one because there's three of them there. I love Stag. I love Mike Nisic Stag. We have a great time when I go there. So for the experience, I go to Stag. I love Mike, who's at Old West. And so I'll go to Old West and have a cigar. It's, it's close to the base, so I can come down and, and have a cigar there. And then Cobalt. Love Dennis at Cobalt. So those probably those three places are my go-to places. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Coke. I'm a Coke guy. Oh, heck yeah, bro. I'm a Coke you... guy. I love Coca-Cola. I got, let me clear. Coca-Cola. Yes. yes. <laughs> but you said liquid, though, so yeah. I don't want to get myself in trouble. Yeah, Coca-Cola. I love a good Coca-Cola. It relaxes me, calms me down, and a nice cigar with it. For me, the flavor of the Coke and the cigar just pairs so well. You get that sweetness. The cigar really brings out the flavors in the Coke. It's just, I don't drink soda. I'm a health nut, but, <laughs> but just, you know, just one can of Coke with my cigar, and oh, it's just, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. A lot of the Holy Smokers laugh at me that I, you know, rarely drink bourbons or whiskeys <laughs> with my cigars. Now you have a, you have a Coca-Cola friend here, so. Absolutely, so bro. Guy. Absolutely, bro. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars. Oh, Wow. I have met so many incredible ones. Name off a bunch. Oh, man. I, I, no, because I'll miss somebody. I'll miss somebody. Because let me tell you something. When I go to those Holy Smokes gatherings, everyone has these really incredible stories. And whether they've done incredible things in ministry or incredible things in business, I hang on to every word that they say. There, there, there's so many really incredible people. So I would say everyone I've talked to in the Holy Smokes groups, um, and I, I got to go to the, I think it was the um, Castle Rock Holy smokes. I met some cool people there as well. Castle Rock. I love that group. Yeah, there's I some really cool people group. there. So I don't want to name them because I'll leave somebody off. But I mean, from the Holy Smokes group, I just keep meeting great people. Best place you've ever smoked. Oh, you ready for this? Best place I ever smoked. It's a tie. There's two of them. One is I'm sitting on a wall, sitting over Pristina, Kosovo and lit up a cigar, and the view looking across Kosovo was just gorgeous. That was amazing. But the other best place I went was Storken, the Hotel Storken in Zurich, Switzerland. My friend Aaron and I, when we were deployed to Europe, went down there, and 19-year-old kid ran the place. He was in a full suit, spoke perfect English, perfect gentleman. It was an incredible experience. Yeah. So those, those two places, that they, they're in my memories. Best conversation over a cigar? This conversation. I've enjoyed <laughs> talking with you, Steve. This conversation has been the best conversation. Most memorable cigar experience? Most memorable. I, I think going back to the, um, going back to the deployment to Europe, uh, we're in Nuremberg, Germany. It's in the middle of the Christmas market. So all the people are out there and we found a place uh, right there in Nuremberg that had cigars. 
But we kept noticing that there was a blocked off area upstairs. And so finally, uh, one of my soldiers that came with us asked, he said, how do we get up there? They've got a bar and it's a beautiful area. He goes, oh, just send me an email. So we sent an email and in the middle of this beautiful time, about this time two years ago, we get to go up there in the special area as special honored VIP guests and have cigars. That was incredible. That's oh, cool. Oh, it was so neat. All right. Marvel or DC? Neither. Okay. I'm a neither guy. I don't like either of those things. Star Wars <laughs> or Star Trek? Do what now? Star Wars or Star Trek? Yeah, neither. I'm not a, not a sci-fi or action guy. What are you? I like deeper stories. I like, like um, this is going to sound bad. I'm kind of a Hallmark guy. I like the feel-good stories. I deal with drama every day when it comes to counseling families and soldiers and things like that. I want a feel-good story that ends well, you know? <laughs> Favorite food? Favorite food? Um, I love Korean food. I love Korean food. Mm. Especially like the beef and leaf where you, you make the meat on your own table and then you wrap it in a leaf and put the kimchi in there. Oh, it's fantastic. I love Ooh. Korean food. Ooh, that sounds really good. I'll have to try that. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? So I used to be a neither, and just the other day, somebody brought me a dog to watch, and the owner of the dog is in Afghanistan right now, deployed, and the guy that was watching him, his kids got sick from the dog because they had bad allergies, and so I now have a dog until March, and maybe even longer than that if they decide that, that they want me to keep it. So I just became a dog guy, and I love the dog. The dog's, it's a Korean name, it's Baduk, and uh, Baduk in Korean means spot. <laughs> so I've got a little dog, and he is my world right now. I, he, he sleeps with me, he does tricks. He, he's just an awesome dog, so I just became a dog guy. What kind of dog? It's a little white dog. Um, Westy? Havanine. Okay. Havanine, I believe, is, is what it's called. Okay. So not quite sure, it's a little white dog, but you know, it's a, it's a, a it's, white dog named Spot. A white dog named Spot. That's it. Korean. <laughs> Nickname growing up or in college? I went by Joe a lot. Interesting. My name is Jody. It's not a good military name because if you know the story behind Jody and World War, all the way back to World War II, they would do Jody calls. And Jody was the guy that was with your girl while you were deployed mm. away. So... I've tried my best to avoid using Jody just because of the negative connotation. So I've been called attack chap. My first unit was an attack helicopter unit. So I was the attack chap. So that carried along PJ for Pastor Jody or just chap. Most guys just call me chap. So my Catholic soldiers will call me Padre from time to time. So what's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I gave one of the things away, the martial arts. Yeah. You know, because... A lot of my soldiers, I'm a non-combatant. I don't carry a weapon, so I go to war without a weapon. I usually have a, a combatant, a, a chaplain that carries a weapon. But a lot of guys, I love to go to the flight tents or go to the combatants or in Iraq. I uh, built a fight house for my soldiers. And a lot of them didn't know I knew martial arts. And so, you know, I build this fight house and these guys are calling me out. And then I walk out there and whip up on them. And they're like, where'd that come from, chaplain? You know, so that it's usually a hidden secret that I do martial arts and then I'll wrestle around with guys or play around. They're like, wow, where'd that come from? So that's usually my secret. So other than that, I don't, I don't know another one. Are you a reader? I am. What's your, one to three of your favorite books not titled the Holy Bible? Um, my all-time 
favorite kind of non-Christian book is a, a book called Gray Eminence, the story of Fox Connor. A lot of people don't know General Fox Connor, but they know three of the men he mentored, Patton, Eisenhower, and Marshall. Really? He was the mentor. Since they were lieutenants, he mentored them all the way up. And I have a heart for coaching and mentoring and pulling into people's, uh, pouring into people's lives. And so that book really resonated me, with me. My favorite all-time Christian book was In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day by Mark Batterson. I love the story of Benaiah. I love that he chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and defeated a lion. I love the story that he took the spears away from his, his Egyptian giants, their own spears, and killed them with them. That is incredible to me. And to me, it represents that God can take, you know, something that's impossible and bring something that's possible. You know, with him, all things are possible. So I love those two stories. you have a life scripture? I do. Uh, it's probably Psalm 144. You know, praise the Lord, my God, my rock, who's prepared my hands for war, my fingers for battle. You know, we fight wars, whether we're civilian or military, we fight wars every day. There's an enemy out there who's a prowler, who's always out to get us. But God has given us all the tools that we need to defeat the enemy. And the other thing is he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. So that scripture always resonates. The other one, and I wanna share this one, Steve, because for those who might be going through a hard time, this scripture right here uh, really helped me go through a hard time. It was 1 Samuel 30, where David goes to war and he comes back from war with all of his soldiers and the enemy has come into the town and kidnapped all of the wives and all the children. And the men all grieve together and they rip they, their clothes and they just grieve and wail loudly. But then as the leader, all the men turn against David. And my favorite part of that scripture is at the end, mm -hmm. the Bible says that David strengthened himself in, in the, the Lord. Lord. Yeah. And I felt like I came back from war and that the enemy had taken my family and taken everything from me. I felt like the world had kind of turned against me in that time. And I just kept reminding myself, if David, in the midst of all that pain, can strengthen himself in the Lord, so can I. And so that was another one that kind of became my life first afterwards. Early riser, night owl, or normal? Early riser and night owl. I walk the floor sometimes at night. That's kind of part of the PTSD thing. But I, I like to get up early. I like to do physical fitness because I feel like I've accomplished one thing in the morning and it pumps me up and, and, and really gives me a good day. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? Probably somewhere where it's warm. <laughs> somewhere it's warm. I'm getting used to this cold being from Louisiana, so I like the warmth. Somewhere warm. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful and why? I think of the older man or woman sitting on their porch, mentoring and talking to someone who's going through something. To me, that's success. You've been there and you've done that and you've gotten the wisdom, and now you're imparting that wisdom to others. To me, that's success. What do you do for self-care, to rest, to recharge? So in the midst of COVID, a guy comes to me and says, hey, I've built you a martial arts school. And so what fills me up, what really feeds me 
is being able to serve others. And so on Tuesdays and Thursdays now, I have a youth, children's and youth MMA program. And being around those kids and getting the poor in those kids, that just, that, I mean, that it just, you know, fuels my fire. That builds me up. It's something different from the military. I get to get away from the military for my daily job and really see these kids grow and develop and become champions. And so it's a weird thing because it's really not restful. It takes a lot of work to do that, but it, it's something that builds me up and, and gives me fulfillment. All right, last three questions. Okay. What does Holy Smokes mean to you? Everything. And how has it contributed Everything. to your spiritual journey? Everything, everything. It's given me community. Something I didn't have because I left home when I was 17 to college and to the military. And so what I gave up on that was community. And so I've moved almost every single year. So I, I haven't had people to pour into my life. And coming here and going through something as difficult as I've gone through, it's meant everything because it's given me community. It's helped me meet unique people. And so right now it's really given me a place to belong. And if you've ever heard the saying, before people want something to believe in, they need a place to belong. And so having the men and women around me who remind me of my faith and who encourage me in my walk and say, you know what? You know, what does God say about that? You know, what are you praying about? Who are pouring into me? That's something I've never had. I'm always the one pouring into other people. But now to have men and women pouring into me, it's incredible. So it's been a, it's been a lot to my faith journey. And I probably wouldn't be where I am right now had it not been for something like Holy Smokes. If you were to have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. <laughs> Can't name Jesus, huh? Oh, wow. Holy smoke. Anywhere, with anyone throughout history. Um, you knew this question was coming, bro. You I listen do. to the show. I do. I do. I do. I would love to have a holy smoke with Winston Churchill. Popular one. Oh, yeah. Why for you? Why? So here's why. When I was at, uh, it's a little bit of a story. When I was in Iraq, I met a, a guy who was a contractor who provided petroleum. His name was Gaz. He was British. His father was a pallbearer for Winston Churchill. And so Gaz calls me after we had come back two years after my deployment. He calls me, he says, hey, mate, would you do my wedding? Would you officiate my wedding? Dang, bro. And I was like, well, I'm not flying to Europe to do your wedding. He goes, no, no, no. I'm getting married in New York City in the Waldorf Astoria. He says, I want to do it in the Winston Churchill suite. He says, because my father was the head of the Sir Majors Academy in Great Britain, and he was the pallbearer for Winston Churchill. So I got to officiate a wedding in Winston Churchill's suite in the Waldorf Astoria and sit at his desk and have a cigar. It was incredible. So I would love to have a conversation with Winston Churchill. And I got a picture of him hanging on my, in my war room in my garage. I think a second one, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Peter. Because I think Peter put his foot in his mouth a lot. And I'm bad about putting my foot in my mouth. And I would love to learn just what that was like being with Jesus and always saying things, being the one to say, you know, Jesus, I would never do that. Or Jesus, I will always be there. And knowing that you've made mistakes and you failed him. Because I think we all do that. So I'd love to have a conversation with Peter over a cigar over that. And I think the third one is one that I've accomplished today. And listening to all the Holy Smokes podcasts, I thought to myself, I would love to sit down, have a cigar, 
and have a conversation with Steve Ryder. And so I think I got my wish today on that. So we've had more than a few cigars together, bro. But this one, this is incredible because I get to share a little bit of my story and I've gotten to hear other people's stories. And so to me, this is an honor to be able to sit down with the podcast with you and have this cigar. You rule, my man. That's my three. Thank you. All right. Final question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a nice can of Coke, ice cold, and we're sitting down having a cigar, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the journey to healing. Journey to healing. New men who've overcome new beginnings. I think that's what we'd celebrate. I would also like to celebrate you having direction Mm. for you getting out of the military and have some clear direction and know where you're going Amen. and be taking steps in that direction. Amen. That's what I want to be celebrating with you, bro. Amen. Jody Harlow. Love you, my man. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it.